From KCRW, this is Nocturne. We were a tiny little graffiti club with three members, but when we went out to do our damage, we called it hitting, and each individual work was called your hit, and there were gradations of style. There was a simple plain style, which would be pretty much legible to anyone, and that sort of went in varying degrees up to a fancy style that had so many flourishes and embellishments that even a lot of other graffiti artists would not be able to read it. And there's technique involved, you know, you like, you hold the can too close to the wall, it'll drip. You, you go too slowly, it'll drip. So I could go into all the technology involved. And then sometime in 1975, the three of us took a trip to New York to see a concert and discovered New York graffiti and how elaborate it was compared to Philadelphia and how the artists all wrote in big block letters with hollow centers that they then could fill in with color and design. So we came back and started doing that. And I don't want to take all credit for introducing that to Philadelphia because I doubt we started that in Philly, but shortly thereafter, it became the thing in Philly and we called it New York style. Other artists called it blocking. And it took everything to a whole new level and required elaborate measures to do it. We had these gym bags that ordinarily might be filled with, you know, tennis shoes and a change of clothes. And ours were filled with spray cans, first and foremost. And the spray cans were weaponized with nozzles from Niagara spray starch. We learned about this somehow through the street and just a rumor going around, this is how you did it. Take the nozzle from Niagara spray starch and you create what's called a Bogart nozzle, which, as opposed to being about an inch wide, is suddenly three or four inches wide with this sort of unique look where it's very bold on the outer edges of your stream and sort of a hollow speckled look in the middle. And I'm not sure if it was called a Bogart nozzle because you Bogarted space on the wall, or I think more likely because it used so damn much paint so quickly. Another thing about paint is the code among graffiti artists was you never bought it. You were supposed to steal it. Beat it, as we said. Stealing was called beating it something we seldom did, mostly because it was really difficult and because, frankly, I think it seemed more dangerous to us than the actual act of writing graffiti. <laughs> anyway, in our bags, we also had all kinds of magic markers, including white ones for dark surfaces, as long as they were smooth. And the pinnacle of markers was what was known as the Pilot, because it was made by the Pilot Pen Company, who makes you know everything down to tiny little pens. But the Pilot was about an inch or an inch and a half in diameter and about eight inches long, perhaps, with a big fat tip. So we had those in our bags. We also kept rags because the subway walls were filthy and we quickly discovered that if we wrote on them with our markers, our markers would get trashed. So before we wrote, we cleaned the walls. Also in our bags were weapons. We actually carried nunchucks, you know, the Bruce Lee martial arts implements with the two wooden rods held together by a chain that you swing around, and kung fu stars, which are you know little metal discs with sharp points all around, which I imagine if you throw them can do some serious damage. And we were thrilled to know that all of this stuff was illegal. We never, ever used it. More from Nocturne in a moment. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. I've always assumed that the phenomenon of graffiti art originated in New York City. But according to New York Magazine, modern graffiti actually began in Philadelphia in the early 1960s, with artists like Cornbread and Cool Earl tagging, that is, writing their names, all over the city. The center of graffiti art did eventually shift to New York in the early 1970s. And by the mid-70s, you could barely see the outside skin of a subway car. By the time I went to high school in Manhattan in the mid-80s, upper-middle-class private school white boys were toting spray cans in their backpacks. Some of them were my friends, and that's how my name ended up deep in a subway tunnel. My friend Ira grew up in Philadelphia in the mid-1970s, which is how I first learned about that city's deep graffiti history and some of the ways that it was connected to the New York scene. My name is Ira Marlowe. I'm a writer and musician. I run a little place in Berkeley called The Monkey House. The story, it's about graffiti. 1975, the summer of 1975, in Philadelphia, we were graffiti artists. Ira and two friends, Greg and Phil, lived in different parts of Philadelphia, but they all went to the same all-boys high school. We were 15. There was so little accountability in those days. I mean, I would, I would go to my homeroom teacher in high school with a note I'd written. It said, Dear Mr. Stein, please excuse Ira's absences on November 1st, 3rd, 5th, 11th, 12th, 17th, and 18th. He had a headache and low-grade fever. You know, I said, thank you, Ira, just take it. They didn't care. They just didn't care. We were three white kids. But most of the graffiti artists were black, there's no question. Greg was the son of this prominent heart specialist, and they were quite affluent and lived in a place that was actually called Society Hill Towers. But Phil and I were much more hard scrabble. We both came from single parent families, his, his dad and my mom, who saw very little of us. That's because the boys had formed their own family. Groups of graffiti artists formed clubs, sort of like gangs, but without the violence. Our little club was called Club City Decorators that Greg, our leader, had invented. But the big club was called HCS, Hip City Swingers. For Ira and his friends, Hip City Swingers were the big league. HCS called themselves the HCS Mob. And one guy named JS would uh, write little rhymes, almost, you know, sort of along the lines of Muhammad Ali, you know. He would write things like, what a way to start the day, up in the morning and out to spray. So I started writing, KCD, we ain't no mob, we just got three, but we do the job. You know, or for short, we ain't no mob, but we do the job. <laughs> and I, I made these really quick caricatures of us. 
sort of like a little logo. My main tag at that time was CZ, which stood for Crazy Zebra, or, or when I had more time, Zebra. <laughs> I just thought it was cool. Ira, a.k.a. Zebra, even had a signature black-and-white striped shirt that he wore. Phil's tag was Mean Streak. Greg's was T-Bone. Regular old law-abiding citizens often assume that graffiti artists do what they do for destructive purposes. But that's not really true. Many are talented artists. Most see graffiti as a way to express themselves. And hugely important is the impulse to be known among their peers. We would spend hours scribbling in our notebooks, you know, developing our letters, developing our styles. And every culture basically performs for other members of that culture. So graffiti artists write for other graffiti artists to see it. And they almost take pleasure in the fact that other people can't read it and don't appreciate it and just think it's garbage. Where when you're in that world, you see the beauty. Oh, God, look at the curl of that S. And look, he came up with a new kind of E. What was transformative at this time is that we had taken a trip to New York City, the three of us, to see all the New York-style graffiti, what we call New York-style, which is huge, hollow letters filled in with color, whereas the Philly style was always just single lines, what, what looks more like scrawl to people. So we kind of, we felt at least that we brought New York-style to Philly, and we started writing like that, and soon other people started writing like that. And there had been, I'm sure, other people isolated instance of but it became more artistic and more elaborate. And it was a huge subculture among kids at that time. And not everybody did what we did and actually went around with cans of spray paint and went, you know, into the subway stations late at night. But everybody was scribbling in their notebooks. Everybody had a name, everybody had a tag, everybody, you know, it was we just took it a little bit further. Taking it further meant being ready to tag anytime, anywhere any available wall. We would have markers on us all the time, you know, any opportunity that arose on a bus, on a wall, or whatever else. And graffiti was so prevalent that it was kind of hard to find available space. You know, so if we saw, oh my God, look, that wall on Shelton Avenue was repainted, let's go get it. So we would keep our eyes open for available space, but we had a certain code of honor, we thought. We would never write on what we thought was private property. We wouldn't write on somebody's house. We wouldn't write on somebody's car. We certainly wouldn't write on trees or monuments. But any commercial space, we were all over it. And it was almost always at night. All, all our big adventures were at night. And the later, the better. And one thing to remember, in the midst of all this, is there was a curfew in Philadelphia. We were not supposed to be on the street after 10 p.m during the week, and maybe it was 11 on weekends. And one of the things that we learned pretty quickly is that Philadelphia police cars all had these trademark headlights and taillights that we could recognize from a distance, you know, from a block away or something, you know. They were all probably 1974, 75 Plymouth Furies with these two orange lights right by the license plate in the bumper. And we would duck into a, a, you know, a doorway or something, wait for them to pass, you know, just become one with the shadows. We would definitely dress in dark clothing. While Ira and his friends clearly knew that what they were doing was against the law, that wasn't a big deterrent. They talk about, you know, the undeveloped frontal cortex of teens, you know, and the risk-taking and all these things. But you don't fully consider the consequences, I think, is a big part of it. It's sort of tunnel vision. One time, I got pulled by the cops, and they said, you know, it's after curfew. And it turned out some arsonist fitting my description. Because the first thing he said, let me smell your hands. And I thought he wanted to smell pot on them. 
You know, and they said, got anything on you you're not supposed to have? But let me go. Probably because I was a little white boy. Part of it, you know, you depend on apathy. You depend on the apathy of people, you know, when you're doing this, that they look and they don't care. Or maybe, I don't know if we figure this into our personal equation, they're a little intimidated, they don't dare say anything. Banking on this apathy and no small dose of an adolescent sense of invincibility, the group had a big job they wanted to do. They had discovered a lot of prime blank canvas. We definitely had a plan for a big attack. Greg couldn't come because he had to babysit his little sister. But this was going to be a great opportunity to do some graffiti art in the New York style they'd been picking up. We would have time to really create. The trip I'm talking about here was a major excursion because we were coming back from a party or something. It was late at night. And we had discovered that one subway station, Chinatown station, after a certain hour of night was unmanned. There wasn't anybody in the booth. There wasn't anybody to see us and we could just go to town. And we'd seen the station was completely clean. What Ira is saying, of course, is that the walls of the Chinatown station were clean. A perfect, empty canvas. So we planned it, and we had our bags filled with, you know, probably five or six rattling spray cans and markers and rags to, you know, clean up the walls if we needed to. And we took the train, and it dropped us off. It's like 2 in the morning. And sure enough, there's nobody in the gate, you know, in the, the toll booth, but it's open, and we have it all to ourselves. And we say, oh my God, this is paradise, this is great. And we go to work. And we're doing these elaborate three-color, you know, my name was Zebra, his name was Mean Streak. I don't know how long we were busy there writing, okay? We covered one side, we crossed the tracks, we covered the other side. A train, we heard a train coming, you know, like, but we still had a lot of paint left and a lot of blank wall left. So we ducked behind something and waited to see what would happen. The train didn't stop, it kept going. You know, we ducked in the shadows, but it went right past, Whew, that's close. So we looked at each other, so, okay, next train, we're out of here, okay, okay. So we're working, we're working, we're working, we hear another train coming. We finish our hits and we run. And it was a longer way than we expected to the exit. So we're running, you know, down one tiled little lane, then up some stairs, up this other thing, and it's gated shut. It's barred shut. And the train stops, and we hear these people yelling, hey, hey, hey! You know, it might have been the conductor of the train or one or two people on the train where they're cleaning it maybe or something. And it sounds like it's getting closer. And we're there just leaning against this gate. I remember looking at Phil. He's got sweat dripping down his forehead. You know, and we're just terrified. This is it. You know, not only are we busted for graffiti, we're busted for this huge thing we just did. And we wait, and then we hear the train leave. And we wait some more, and we wait some more, and we like tiptoe back in, we look around, we see it's safe, and then we try the other exit. That one must be open, also locked. So to this day, the only thing I can think is they close automatically at a certain hour, maybe? But we cross the tracks the other side, both gates locked. So Ira and Phil have checked all the exits. They're trapped underground in the Chinatown subway station. And then we looked at each other, and the only way out was through the tunnels. When you're a graffiti artist, one thing you do is you go to the front car and you look out through the window because you can see everything coming. And it's a really exciting view, but you can also see that in the tunnels... 
are the names of the graffiti artists of an even greater legend who have walked through the tunnels and written their name. There was this guy named Tank, who was one of the biggest artists at the time. And you would see tank, 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 through almost all of that. It was amazing, you know. To us, it was just, you know, like the pieta. The boys had thought about going into the tunnels before, but hadn't yet worked up the nerve. Now they had no choice. It's hard to overstate how incredibly dangerous this is. These days, you know, you could like Google, where's the third rail? You know, how dangerous is the subway, blah, blah, blah. We didn't know. We just knew that the tank and some other people had done it. But next thing we did, we had to do it. Between the oncoming train, potentially, and the third rail, which everyone knows, you touch it for a split second, you're dead. It's a tremendous amount of electricity going through there. And you even wonder, maybe if you get close to it, your pants, you know, your bell bottoms you're wearing, you know? <laughs> You know, plus it's dark, so so we go and we start we start walking through this tunnel. It is lit by literally a lone hanging light bulb about every 50 feet. Okay, and we would walk to them, you know, like like you know, like the Magi, just following this star, staying away from the third rail. The tunnels, the walls of the tunnels, had these scalloped walls, where it was sort of cut into a portion of a circle, and then cut again in these waves. There's very little space between the track and the louvered wall, that, that scalloped wall. So we'd be walking on the tracks with the idea that if a train came, we'd have to duck into the scalloped wall and hope we would not be sucked into the train by the wind and by whatever vacuum that created. And we had no idea. We'd heard stories about this. And we just hope it's late at night. There won't be that many trains. We seem to have a feeling that they came maybe every half hour if they were still running at all. But we, we walked through there from light to light, and at one point on our right, the scout wall was broken by this little alcove with like two little ladders, one leading up, we assumed, to the street somehow, and the other leading down. And we looked at it. It's lit, this little dim light bulb, plus there's light from the street, from street lights above, because we look up and we realize there's a grate in the street. And the ladder's about 15 feet above that. Phil climbs up first, I'm right behind him. And we get to the top, and there's a big, huge lever. You know, a flat paneled lever about as wide as the width of your, your fingers. And the sign caked over with dirt says to open, pull lever to side and push. And we spend about 10 minutes untangling this lever, which has been wired shut. It clearly has not been opened in many, many years. Phil turns down to tell me something. I realize his face is completely covered in dirt now, as are his hands, as are mine. Just because of the filth on this thing, we finally get the wire off. Phil takes the thing, pushes it all the way to the side, and then thrusts up as hard as he can. Nothing. He says, help me. I'm, I'm like, this rung below him. We're pushing as hard as we can. Nothing. So I say, maybe the other way. Phil pulls it the other way, I'm right behind him. Suddenly the thing just starts lifting up. Literally lifts him up while he's kicking. So he's kicking his legs and holding on for dear life. This thing is opening like a drawbridge. I'm climbing out just as he's jumping down. And we look and we are half a parking lot away from what is known as the Roundhouse, the Philadelphia police station, the main police station in Philadelphia. And immediately we hear, hey, hey! And we run, 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 and we run. 
Finally, I don't know how many blocks away we were. We duck into some alley or something, and we both just start laughing hysterically, you know, that we'd gotten through this. We said our goodnight, and I just took the subway and, and found my way home to Germantown, to the roach-infested apartment building where I lived with my mom and my sister, and uh, hopefully sneak in so they couldn't hear me and, and then not go to school. I had, that year, I had 72 absences from high school. A week or so later, Phil and I made a point to go back and check out our handiwork. You know, the criminal always returns to the scene of the crime, and... Uh, it, at that point, was was still, still covering that kind of. As far as we were concerned, that was going to make our name. We felt like God, we've got a tale to tell for 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 a good long time. You might think that having to race through the subway tunnels, skirting the third rail, and coming up across from the police station in the middle of the night might have put a damper on the friend's enthusiasm for illicit graffiti. You'd be wrong. It was a frantic rush. It's an adrenaline rush, you know. I mean. Fear heightens a sense of being alive, for good or for bad, and it made us want to do it again. Because we won. We won. We covered the station. Everything worked out great, and we had a great story to tell. After that close call, the boys had more fun, more close calls, and Phil and Greg were even caught by the police. Ira was with them, but he got away. They all agreed at that point that they would stop. But within a month or so, we were back at it. It's a big dopamine rush that you get used to and you want again. Ira ended up moving to Richmond, Virginia to live with his dad for senior year of high school. And he kept up the graffiti. In fact, he became a big fish in a little pond, gaining some notoriety in the process. There wasn't a graffiti scene in Richmond when Ira arrived, meaning no competition for space and visibility. So he got to work. I started writing, you know, just because it was something to do. It was, it was exciting. I, I had a wraparound school from doing Everybody thought I was cool. And then I met my friend Peter, who became the bass player in my first real band. And uh, then he became my driver. And then it got really elaborate. And he would, you know, sit there and, and, and wait. I climbed this huge billboard that overlooked, like, the freeway, you know, and got my name up there. My favorite hit, there was this place not far from where my father lived. Yes, I'm still living at home at this time. Called the American Opinion Bookstore, which is a John Birch Society, ultra-conservative bookstore. And to the right of their entrance was just this big white square of painted brick, just painted bright white. So I got there and I made this red and blue zebra fitting perfectly in there. All in all, Ira eventually tagged over 50 buildings in Richmond. There were even a couple of features on Zebra in local newspapers. One read, perhaps Richmond's first and certainly its most recent brand of outlaw art surfaced this past year in the form of the ubiquitous Zebra, the signature of the perpetrator or creator, depending on one's point of view, of the graffiti that has greeted Richmonders on almost every sort of imaginable public or commercial edifice. The article had an anonymous interview with Ira and an accompanying picture. Me posing with a bag over my head with eye holes in a Z. The zebra tag finally stopped making an appearance after Ira graduated high school, when the stakes became higher. I officially retired when I turned 18, because that's you know when they can start really getting you. 
Graffiti was classified as vandalism in Richmond, and Ira had definitely caught the attention of law enforcement. That magazine article quoted a Sergeant W.W. Smith of the Richmond City Police saying that Zebra was in violation of Ordinance 22.33.3, a Class 1 misdemeanor, punishable by incarceration of no more than one year and or a fine of up to $1,000. And later I learned that there was a, a pool among the cops of, like, who would be the first to get me. It was like a kitty of money that put up. But the thing is, what protects graffiti artists is there are a lot of laws that basically say you have to catch them in the act. No one ever did catch the scrappy kid in the black and white striped shirt. And despite his high school rep and the media attention, Zebra was not the spark to light the fire of graffiti in Richmond, Virginia in the 1970s. And in the end, he was relieved. Years later, Greg and Phil, Ira's outlaw partners from Philly, gave him a hard time for bringing graffiti to Richmond. They said, you shouldn't have done that. That was a really terrible thing you did. You know, Even as pro-graffiti as we were in Philly, it was cool to do because everyone else was doing it. You know, and whatever blight we created, and even though we thought we told ourselves it was beautiful, they said, man, you know, it was kind of shitty for you to do that because you could have just infested the whole city. But the only thing that happened was people would try to imitate my name. There were other people writing Zebra. I would find really bad copies of my name written up there. But fortunately, it didn't catch on. Ira is a business owner now with a semi-underground music club in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as much as he relishes revisiting fond memories from his outlaw days, his feelings about graffiti have gone the way of most adolescent thrills. These days, when people paint graffiti, I'm the first guy to clean it off. I understand why they do it, but I also understand how screwed up it is. And if I ever caught anybody writing graffiti, I would talk to them. I'd say, you know, I get it, I get it, I get it. But, you know, you don't realize the consequences of your actions. That's grown-up Ira talking, not Zebra, though. And while I also understand how screwed up it is, it's still fun to picture that 15-year-old boy running through the nighttime streets of Philly, feeling so alive and invincible, and finding a way to make himself known, damn the consequences. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW and also receives support from KCRW's independent producer project, which is managed by Kristen Lepore. Thank you to Nick White. I have some exciting news to share. As of the release of this episode, you can now download and listen to Possum Music, an album of music from the first 30 episodes of Nocturne. It's available as a digital download now with a CD to come later. And right now, if you donate at least $10 to KCRW and add a note at the end of the process that you're a Nocturne listener, we'll send you a download code for the whole album as a thank you. You can go do that at kcrw.com give. You can also find information at our website, nocturnepodcast.org, under the music tab. Again, go to kcrw.com give and leave a note about Nocturne at the end of the donation process. Or go to nocturnepodcast.org to the music tab. Also at our website, in the show notes for this episode, you can find additional information, including that picture of Zebra with the bag over his head, a link to a song that Ira wrote about those early graffiti days, 
as well as a link to a documentary about the Philadelphia graffiti scene, which includes interview footage with Greg, one of the three original members of Club City Decorators. Till next time, be well, and thanks for listening.